Welcome to The Boiling Frog, where we chat about the intersection of politics, economics, history, and science. I'm Seth Rosenblatt. And I'm Mark Olbert. We're really glad that you came back to join us in the lily pond again. So today, Mark, we're going to talk about the nature of representative democracy versus, for example, what a direct democracy is. And specifically, let's talk about the role of the elected representative, particularly in the context we're most familiar with, which is a local one, such as a city council or a school board. So let's understand what that job entailed. Let's talk about the traps that a lot of elected officials fall into and also talk a bit about how the public gets involved and how they can be the most effective. And in doing that, we're going to be able to draw on a wealth of stories that we have from our uh, collective, I think it was about 30 years of experience as elected officials. So uh, hopefully that'll provide a little entertainment as well. One point that we want all of our listeners to keep in mind about, however, is in California, most local governments don't have separate executive and legislative bodies. Now, for example, larger cities like San Francisco or Los Angeles do have separately elected mayors, which is an executive position. But most smaller communities like San Carlos, where we serve, really only have a single governmental body, and that's a legislative body, a city council or a school board. So what does it really mean to be a representative? Like, why do we even have representatives? Why don't we have direct democracy? That's a really good question. Like with anything, there are pluses and minuses to the choice. Direct democracy lets people directly express their will. But California propositions are actually a great example of the trade-offs involved in that kind of direct democracy. They are a way for people to express their views. They're also a way for legislators to avoid having to make difficult choices because the voters are making them instead of the legislators making them and being held accountable for them. But it short circuits the political process and it opens a door to give special interests probably a far bigger role in the political process than most people would prefer that they have. There's also a thing you have to keep in mind that it takes time and effort to make good political trade-offs, whether it's a legislator doing that or somebody casting a ballot, a voter casting a ballot. Most voters don't want to take that time, not because they think it's not important, but just they have other things with their life that they want to do. And even if they take the time to study an issue and make a careful political trade-off in their own mind, it's only in their own mind. There's no way to negotiate with all of the other voters in California when you're at the ballot box casting your vote because they're not there. That's one of the advantages of having representatives. They can all get together in a room and trade stuff off so that overall you get a better result than you're going to get by just having voters cast ballots individually. And clearly in practice, most democratic institutions around the world have chosen some form of representative democracy as their approach to government. I guess it's just frankly a lot more efficient. In terms of the role of the individual representatives and their duty to the people who elect them or to other people, how do you think about that in terms of reflecting opinions or reflecting values and, and leading versus following? You know, that's a really good question, and it was one that I know I struggled with many times as an elected official, and I clearly could tell that my colleagues often had different views of the combinations of things I'm going to talk about. For what it's worth, for me, I tended to look at it as layered duties. In other words, having duties to different constituencies, starting with, like it or not, to the entities and people and organizations that fund you, that make it possible for you to be an elected official. That's not really officially part of the job, but in practice it is, because as uh, one of my favorite TV shows observed, if you don't win, you can't govern. But beyond that, clearly you have to represent and you have a duty to represent the views of the people who voted for you. But that's not really enough even by itself, because you also have to represent the people who don't agree with you, who voted for somebody else. And even beyond that, 
you have to represent all the voters in your district, some of whom may have just chosen not to participate in the election that resulted in you getting on the council or the school board. But they're voters, too, that you have to represent their views. And even beyond that, you have a duty, in my opinion, to represent all the people in your district, including the people who, for whatever reason, age or immigration status or whatever, actually can't vote. But you still have to represent them because they're still human beings and you have a duty to them. And lastly, even beyond that, you arguably, in my opinion, have a duty to the people who may not even live in your community, but are affected by the decisions that your community makes. It reminds me about how, you know, particularly some city councils, for example, have members that represent specific districts, but yet their decisions are for the whole city. And there's a sort of a conflict always there. And that's true, of course, in state representatives and federal representatives as well. But it also makes me think of what we used to talk about in the school board, which is that we used to serve the constituency that couldn't vote for us because it was children. Right. And although parents, you know, may be proxies for the voice of their children, they're imperfect ones at best. Yeah, and there are other examples of, of similar oddities in the representative process. You know, for example, I mentioned a few seconds ago about representing the interests or having a duty to the people who don't even live in your community. We have a weird dynamic, particularly nowadays in our society, where where you sleep ends up being the most important factor in which government you get to participate in in terms of electing people. That probably made a lot more sense decades and centuries ago when people didn't move around a lot. But nowadays, where people live one place, work another place that may be 50 or 60 miles away, and shop in places all over the place, let alone vacation and stuff, it probably makes a lot less sense in our modern world. But we still use the approach of where you sleep is where you vote. And uh, it leads to some interesting uh, complications. Well, isn't that why so many cities love a hotel tax or occupancy tax for, for hotels? Because it doesn't actually affect the people who at least permanently sleep in that town? That's exactly right. When we were on the council, you're always looking for ways to basically charge people who can't vote for you or can't vote against you for whatever they want so that you have money to do stuff that the people who do vote for you want. Mark, what we're really discussing here are elected bodies. So we have to talk about the dynamics of group decision making. And I would imagine it's challenging enough to be an individually elected representative, like a mayor or any other executive. It's like, but it's a whole other thing to be elected and be individually accountable as an elected official. But you know you can only get stuff done in a group because you run as an individual. You know, you run for election on your own. But you have no individual power once you get on the elected body, once you're on the council, once I was on the school board. We only made progress, we could only make decisions when a majority, or in some cases a supermajority, of that body agrees. So you seem to have this group dynamic challenge, right, to balance being an advocate for your point of view, but also knowing that you eventually need consensus. Legislators like to act as individuals so that if nothing else, they earn credit with voters so they can get reelected. But the group dynamic, the group process is actually really important to the community as a whole and the community needs wouldn't get addressed without the group. And that's because, frankly, no one person knows all the answers. There's an old joke about legislators are basically like a group of blind people in a room trying to figure out what animal is sharing a room with them. And it's an elephant, but they can only feel it by bumping into it occasionally. And, and if they all had the same expertise or they had they all agreed on everything, you wouldn't need all five people or seven people or however many are on that body. 
I used to have discussions with some newly elected colleagues who tended to, in my opinion, overemphasize the importance of consensus. And I would remind them that the whole reason for having more than one of us is actually so that we get a better view of reality, that we don't all agree about stuff, because that's how we figure out how the reality of the complex world that we're trying to govern. The other thing to remember And another reason why it's important to have groups of representatives instead of just single individuals, laws are primarily followed by people being willing to follow them, not by them being enforced. And to the extent that having a group of legislators enact a law requires that they achieve a consensus on what the law should be, that actually increases the chance that more people in the community are simply going to follow it, which avoids the futility and the expense of enforcement. But there's clearly no one approach that works here because we've seen a spectrum of group dynamics around local boards and councils and just in our area. Right. So the San Francisco City Council, for example, is sort of famously dysfunctional and uh, (laughs) with infighting and people representing their own interests of their districts and what have you. And clearly that's not really serving the community as well as it could because of that dysfunction. But on the other end of the spectrum, I once many years ago talked to a local school board member who was a few towns away from us, and she was proudly telling me how they had 100% unanimous votes in their her entire time on the board. And I was thinking to myself, well, that's probably not serving the community very well either <laughs> because it's not generating good ideas or trying new things. So how do you find the sort of optimal point, you know, on this spectrum between those two extremes? It's really hard to do. And I've unfortunately seen, in my opinion, some local bodies, the San Carlos City Council, that didn't actually do as effective of a job as they could have because they couldn't figure out where to be on that spectrum. I would argue that the goal ought to be respectful engagement. In other words, even if you disagree that you respectfully do so, you could heatedly disagree as long as it's done respectfully, recognizing that other people may have valid points of view and other people may see things that you yourself don't see. I contrast that with one of the things that when I was on the San Carlos Council that used to drive me crazy, they have a rule and have had for many years that nothing can even get on the agenda unless a majority of the council wants to have it discussed on the agenda. I used to tell people, that's nuts, guys. So we're only going to discuss stuff that we already have agreed on? But it, it, it defeats the entire purpose of having a representative body, a representative group to try and come up with a consensus because you're not even talking about it. If I don't understand what your priorities are and you don't understand what my priorities are, even if we initially disagree, there's no way we can balance things. There's no way we can we can do the horse trading that's necessary for the political process to work. At the end of the day, it's important to remember that the whole reason we have elected bodies, the whole reason communities vest political power in those elected bodies is to do things for the community, is to make the community better, to deal with community problems and issues. It's not just so that electeds can get reelected as individuals. There is this community benefit that we want to have, too. So let's go a little deeper into the actual job as a representative. On a city council for a school board, for example, the the little job description is is well published. It's about hiring and managing the executive, which can be a superintendent in the case of a school board or a city manager in the case of a city. It's about ensuring fiscal responsibility, passing some policies or laws. There's some quasi-judicial functions as well in these boards. And of course, an elected's job is really fundamentally just to do the work that any of his or her constituents could do if they're willing to devote the time to it. Really, the representative is really just saying, this is going to be my focus. 
I always used to tell people it's not like electeds are any smarter or any better than the people they represent, because they're not. All they've done is committed to study the issues of public concern in their community and to use their best judgment on behalf of the community and not just on behalf of themselves as individuals. Fundamentally, at the end of the day, it's all about using good judgment. Yes, I've been asked so many times, like, what specific expertise do you need to serve on a school board or city council? And I always thought the question was flawed. I I think there's a fallacy because some people say, for example, the case of school board members, they may need an education background. Others would say, oh, they need a legal background. Others would say they need a business or financial background, or maybe you have a portfolio of members in the group, so you have this mixture. I always thought that was flawed because at the end of the day, individual school board members or the school board as a group, they don't do the work of the school district. They aren't supposed to be the experts in any of those specific areas. They hire the experts. It always has reminded me a lot of the difference between being an executive and being a manager or an employee in a private sector organization. Executives often have some level of technical expertise in the area they oversee and manage, but it's usually only a tiny portion of the area. They, they basically earn their executive position based on their talent and ability and, and willingness to work hard, but they're well beyond their depth in terms of knowing everything and every facet of part of the business that they're in charge of. Instead, what they have learned how to do or what they have to learn how to do is to assess people, to assess expert input, to assess and balance the conflicting recommendations that come in from experts. And so their expertise isn't really in any particular subject anymore. It's really in how do you coordinate the efforts of a lot of other experts, a lot of other expert people to come up with a result that's better than what an individual could do by themselves. And of course, you can't divorce your expertise from how you look at the world and analyze problems. So you could certainly be a lawyer and be on a school board, but that's not the same as being the lawyer for the school board nor the, being the CFO or the educator. Yeah, that's, you know, when, when uh, I was at Tuck in uh, business school years and years ago, I don't know if they did this at Harvard. One of the things they used to pound into our head is that the best sales manager in an organization isn't always the best salesperson. It's a different set of skills. So it goes back to what you referenced earlier, Mark. It's really about the ability to have good judgment, which is about the willingness and the ability to take a critical thinking approach, to be able to look around corners, uh, see patterns, and then make a decision accordingly knowing you have incomplete information. And, (laughs) And praying that you're right in what you decide to do. Of course. So there's certainly a lot of mistakes that elected representatives make. And if anything, there's a there's a few defined traps that I think we've both noticed over the years that sort of electeds fall into. And it feels like fundamentally it's because maybe for psychological reasons, it's easy for people to define their own role as more about who they are relative to other members of a group rather than who they are as part of that group. And I think actually it's true because of what we talked about a little while ago, which is legislators are elected as individuals, but they can only act as groups. And there's a fundamental conflict there that they're constantly struggling with. And yes, There were a lot of traps that I saw myself and other people fall into. I mean, you know, for example, there's the person who views themselves as the opposition rather than what you stand for, what your priorities are, and trying to think about how do you create a coalition to make change happen? Because the only way change is going to happen is if the majority of the elected body decides to do it. Similarly, there is, we always ran into the person on a board with us who claimed, you know, I'm the fiscally responsible one, you know, one implying that others aren't. However, and and also ignoring the fact that it's a lot more complicated than that. Doing budgets is about trade-offs, right? And there's no one in the group that, you know, wants the organization to go bankrupt. So it's it's a bit of a throwaway. 
there was something I dealt with a lot. Uh, I'd have to say more often on the city council than on the, the school board where we had, a, how shall I put this, a somewhat more dynamic group of personalities. But a lot of times I'd find people who took the view of, well, my job is simply to represent the views of a, the majority of my constituents and do whatever that majority wants done. And I always used to have to say, that's only part of our job. I mean, it's not always about running to the front of the crowd and screaming, follow me. Sometimes you actually have to engage in some education and some leadership. It also made me think about, we had both had folks that we worked with who define themselves as the person who holds the staff accountable. Um, <laughs> you know, in the, in the case of whether it be a city staff or, you know, the school district staff or what have you. And appreciating that, yes, of course, that's part of the role, but rather not understanding it's a bit more nuanced than that. It's the balance of the accountability for the organization with also enabling the organization for success, which sort of, as you indicated earlier, is sort of the core to the way an executive at a private company would look at their job. There was also a trap that I saw people fall into where, touching on something we brought up earlier, they would take, in my perspective, too narrow a view of who they were representing, whose interests they should be making decisions on behalf of. For example, I had a colleague on the council who uh, did not have kids and had never had, to my knowledge, kids in the public school system. And so anytime any public issue came up that involved the public schools and might have provided some benefit for them, he was either neutral at best or opposed to it simply because he viewed that as beyond his interest and beyond the interests of the community, even though many people in San Carlos had their kids in public schools. You also have a situation where sometimes electeds would overweight the views of the people that they literally lived nearby. And they, they would start reflecting perhaps the opposition that would occur because of something that was going to be done in one part of the community that benefited the community overall. But by overweighting the views of the people who lived right there or lived right near them, they ended up opposing something that wasn't arguably wasn't really in the, the right thing for the community as a whole to do. Right. Well, and this relates to another issue I know you're passionate about and you brought up earlier, which is sort of thinking even beyond the specific perspective of the local community you represent? In other words, avoiding a form of provincial thinking, let's call it? The clearest example to me right now about that is the whole housing dilemma that the Bay Area and most of California is, is wrestling with. Most local communities are fine having more jobs come in because they earn tax revenue associated with that for people who don't live there and therefore don't consume services, and they get to use that money to provide services for the people who do live there. They prefer to have the housing problem handled by somebody else, anybody else. The problem with that is when enough people do that, when enough communities do that, when they think that provincially, they stop thinking about the stuff beyond their own borders— you end up with all sorts of crises. You end up with traffic crises and housing crises and young people can't get starting their own homes because there's no affordable housing that they can afford to live in. And it causes all sorts of problems. And eventually it gets escalated to the point where the state comes in and basically says, OK, all you guys down below, you've been making uh, suboptimal decisions that look good on a local level, but really are not good on a regional or state level for years. Clean up your act or we're going to punish you. That's a perfect example of a prisoner's dilemma. 
And other one came to me as well, which is when I was on the school board, this is maybe about 10 years ago, our state senator had called in leaders from all of the local school districts in the area to talk about some pending education bills, including an effort to make preschool universal. And I was really excited because this was an effort that I know everyone in the room had talked about for years and advocated for years. They're all educators or they're on school boards and they knew the power of having sort of universal preschool education. So imagine my shock when we actually got to that point in the discussion in this giant room uh, that we're all meeting in. And a number of people started telling the senator that he shouldn't actually pursue this. They suggested that if the state had more money to give them, they would actually spend it on something else, which individually was a higher priority for them. <laughs> and they just thought they were being logical. And all you know, he, the senator had asked, who leaves with this? And like three quarters of the hands went up in the room and I was shocked. I raised my hand and said, excuse me, I think we're all falling into this trap of the prisoner's dilemma. And you reiterated that I know all these people and that they believe in this and this is something we should do. And they didn't really understand how this sort of seemingly optimal decision for their own individual district was suboptimal for the entire system, and I would argue even suboptimal for them in the long run. I'm not sure how much they appreciated my pointing that out at the time, <laughs> but it was something that I thought made a lot of sense. I suspect they probably didn't appreciate it at yeah, the time. Unfortunately. So. <laughs> but let's remember, and I think we'd agree on this, thinking provincially isn't always bad. I mean, for example, if there's a purely local issue that really doesn't have a footprint, doesn't really involve in any significant way people outside the bounds of your community, do you want people from outside your community trying to exercise control over what your community chooses to do? I remember dealing with an issue like that in San Carlos on the city council where there was a new firearm store that wanted to open in town. And we heard from lots of people in San Carlos, the vast majority of whom did not want another firearm store opened in town. And yet at the same time, we also heard from a lot of people from other communities from around the state, around the nation, who weighed in exhorting us or often yelling at us to demand that we allow this store to open. And yet really, arguably, it was really none of their business because it didn't really affect them. So is that an example of people in Texas claiming a false externality of what people decided to do in San Carlos? Yes, it, very much so, although the guy in particular I'm thinking of uh, was from Ohio and, and Oklahoma, now that I think about that, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good segue to start talking about the role of public input in the governing process. And we both know public input is required by law, but let's talk about how it works in practice. Are elected officials just sort of going through the motions because it's public input's required, or does that input really help somehow? I think it's pretty clear that it, it not only helps, but it's actually essential because it's a key part of creating community consensus behind the rules that get developed. And you need that consensus in order for the rules to have legitimacy so people will follow them. It is admittedly, from the elected's point of view, sometimes painful. But I always found that someplace lurking in any comment, there was generally a gem of useful input there. I, I just remember, I'm sure you do too, all sorts of comic examples, right, of crazy comments by people who are, you know, just clearly uninformed. Some seem to live in an alternate reality or, you know, maybe they're just merely exercising a bit of self-interest. <laughs> yeah, I, I used to joke that I can't recall ever hearing a public comment being made that wasn't purely by coincidence, of course, in the speaker's own interest. In fact, I used to tell people, if you really wanted me to pay attention to something you were saying, start off by explaining to me how it's not in your self-interest, because then all of a sudden I'm like, hey, that might be in the community's interest. I better listen to that. But we also have to remember a good idea is a good idea wherever it comes from. 
nobody has a monopoly on the truth. That's why we don't have just single legislators forming legislative bodies. We have multiple people trying to figure out what the reality is. And, and that's really true for anything that involves perceptions and individual judgments on public issues. And I've noticed that, you know, sometimes input from the public can spark a necessary discussion among the elected officials, even if the comment itself in isolation wasn't that valuable. But we also have to recognize there's an inherent selection bias and a participation bias in public input, which are really two sides of the same coin. Public bodies generally don't solicit input broadly in a statistically valid representative way. And frankly, the people who show up to give input to elected bodies are almost never a representative sample of the broader population. They're there because of some impact on their self-interest. And isn't there this other psychological phenomenon that we call consensus bias, where people sort of always think they speak for the majority, which we know can't be true in practice? <laughs> One of my favorite aphorisms from my career as an elected official, we all speak for the majority. And you're right, it's just not true. We just think we do. There was an example in San Carlos a few years ago where that was really on display. A group of people got together to form a lobbying group because they were concerned about big houses being built on small lots in San Carlos and they wanted to restrict house sizes. And they would routinely make comments about, you know, we speak for the community. Everybody I talk to agrees with me. And I vividly recall other members of the community coming up to me after meeting saying, they don't speak for me, but I'm not going to stand up there and say anything because I think they might tear me to shreds if I did. <laughs> right, right. So we know it's always been true that the relationship and the communication between public officials and the public has its challenges and has its opportunities. But let's talk about how that's been changed over the last few decades in sort of world where information has been democratized. I think I think of the metaphor of what WebMD has done for doctors, right? I think doctors probably consider it a blessing and a curse, right? They like the fact <laughs> that people are more informed. But at the same time, I think a lot of people take information and it's out of context. It's difficult for them to place it in context, even if the fundamental underlying information is sound. And many times I think it makes like a doctor's job harder. Obviously, that's a lot worse now with respect to COVID and all of the disinformation that exists online. So if the, so if the information is not sound, of course, then it's a, and it's a real problem, whether it's about the, the vaccines or, you know, what have you. I notice it not only in the public sector, but even in my private sector career, people have this weird habit of hiring experts and then rejecting their advice, particularly if it's not advice that they wanted to hear. And I'm like, well, why did we waste the money hiring those people in the first place if we weren't going to pay attention to them? And you're right. Social media platforms, uh, Nextdoor, Facebook, whatever, have made this problem a lot worse because they don't really do much curating, I think is the term, of expertise. In fact, it's not really in their interest because the more provocative statements they could put out there, the more eyeballs they attract. And that's what their business is. They are in the business of selling eyeballs. And I worked in the technology industry for many years, and I bought into this sort of promise of the democratization of information, right? It seems to make sense, at least in the abstract, but maybe in reality, not all voices should be equal, right? We've seen such a degradation of expertise and this all-too-easy propagation of sort of ignorance and insanity online. Definitely something that we could make the subject of another podcast. 
I do think it's important to remember, though, that too is a little bit nuanced. I would argue that the listener or the reader of information from social media does bear some responsibility for how they use it, how they internalize it. And they shouldn't just blindly accept that, oh, it's okay because I read it online. But I do agree with you that an unfortunate side effect of wiring the world, even though it created enormous benefits, is it's made it much easier for all the crazies to find each other nowadays. And then it feels like it's also helped in some way when we talk about local officials and local public behavior. It seems to have been trained by the habits we've done in national politics. And what I mean by that is the divisiveness and the meanness you see on the national scale. You start seeing people act the same way to their sort of local officials like us. And, and I know and I know you've done this and I've done this where I've sometimes called people out on bad behavior. I, I'm sure we've both gotten plenty of really mean emails about whatever the subject was. And after a little while, I started getting to the habit of what I would do with those emails is, of course, I'd first respond to the person with the substance of the matter at hand and saying, OK, here's my way of looking at the issue, whatever the issue happened to be. Then sort of at the end, I'd always have this sort of paragraph. At some point, I just started cutting and pasting it <laughs> into the end of my emails that said, by the way, I have some advice. If your goal was to influence my decision-making process, then insulting me probably isn't the best approach to do that. And it's funny enough, I would say probably more than 50% of the time, which is really interesting, I would get a reply email with an apology. So that was that was actually at least, at least useful to see. <laughs> I occasionally would get that. I have to say that I, I always used to tell people, I noticed it more on the council than on the school board. I, I used to tell people, I never knew how truly stupid I was until I served on the San Carlos City Council, because there seemed to be <laughs> an right. unending supply of people who would point out how dumb I was. But you know, you're, you're absolutely right. It's in the interests of voters and citizens, residents in a town to remember that the representatives they elect, even though they elect them, those representatives are the decision makers until they leave office or are voted out of office or recalled or, or whatever. And it's kind of like, you know, sales 101, don't insult the person that you need to do what you'd like them to do. You're trying to persuade. You're not trying to bully somebody into a position. Well, and I think that's particularly true on the local level, right? Because I was never really intimidated by sort of the normal political threats that people would throw out. We'll vote you out of office. And I'm like, okay. I mean, it wasn't my goal to be a career politician, <laughs> right? I think even once I said in a meeting, like, well, I'm sorry you disagree. Feel free to vote me out. I'll be more than happy to spend a lot of time at home with my wife and kids. And, and so I think it's very it's a little different than people don't realize, particularly on the local level. Yeah, I remember you saying that multiple times, and it usually really astounded the people that that you were responding to. <laughs> you know, there's another aspect to local representation, dealing with local elected officials that I think it's important for residents to keep in mind. You have an opportunity because of the physical intimacy, the fact that you live in the same community, to, to interact in a far more persuasive, productive way by getting together with your elected representatives. It's almost impossible for any random Californian to meet with the governor of California on whatever issue you want to talk about. But I used to tell people when I was on the council, hey, look, I'm often down at Pete's Coffee at four o'clock in the afternoon. If you got an issue you want to talk about, come on by. Yeah, I think uh, I'm sure that's true. But I think, unfortunately, a lot of people didn't. And we <laughs> yeah. would have experiences. And one that sticks out of my mind, I know you remember this, where the school board some years ago was considering a boundary change. Uh, meaning the changing the where different houses, what schools that, you know, their kids would go to because there was this sort of big mismatch between the population of children as it had grown throughout the years and the school boundaries as they were drawn. So I know you remember that one. Oh, yeah, I remember that one. I also remember all the time and effort I spent doing statistical analyses of the standardized test scores that were admittedly somewhat different between the schools. But the differences were statistically insignificant. But those things just got 
blown out of huge proportion in a totally irrational way. However, I think it was a combination of this uninformed data or arguments people had and amplification from social media or email or what have you that really tried to make this a bigger deal than it was. And I remember an experience where we had a board meeting right before we made a final decision. And this one gentleman came to the meeting, took public comment and literally screamed at us about how we were going to ruin his daughter's life because she would go to a different kindergarten than the one he thought. Fortunately, despite the fact that we really just had to sit there and take it, my colleagues and I, I think, still made the change that we're going to make because it was the right decision to do. And what was interesting about this story is something happened that had never happened before, certainly in my career in politics, which is a year later, the same gentleman came back to another board meeting and stood up for public comment again. And this time he actually apologized to us, saying that he was uninformed and rude and he was wrong and that his daughter was actually thriving in the new school. So that that was great to hear. I always remember that story of yours because I had never seen that before or after in any of the years that I was on a body. It it may be a unicorn, yeah. Yeah. Well, and actually, that guy made a transition in between the two times he appeared that I would argue, and we'll talk about uh, either later in a different podcast— probably actually set him up to be a better public official. He should actually think about running for office because he learned something important there. The story is a tremendous example of something that happens in politics all the time, which is reductionism. People often oversimplify issues and tend to ignore nuances on public matters. Right. And I've noticed that I think there's a certain irony in the fact that the transparency of the public agency can give the illusion of simplicity. And you brought up before, judging the quality of the school based on test scores, because those are the things that are easily measured and, and published. And I also used to joke as well that everyone thinks they could run a school because we all went to school. But we know intellectually, like, that we can't all run a restaurant because we all eat. <laughs> That's right. And, you know, actually, from the community member's point of view, the voter's point of view involved in electing representatives, they should expect and want their elected representatives to know more about the issues that are being decided than they, the constituents themselves, do. That's the whole point of having somebody dedicate their time and effort to study an issue instead of forcing every single voter in town to study the issues as well. But that kind of dichotomy is a difficult thing to communicate, particularly politely in a public forum. The only way I ever heard it done even somewhat effectively was to say something along the lines of, well, it's a bit more complicated than that. And here's some of the complications. And and feel free to talk to me about it. I'm even happy to talk through it with you. Yeah, exactly. So let's get specific about our recommendations for citizens on better participating in the governance process and getting better local public leadership at the same time. Well, I think one thing right off the bat is be really careful about voting for extremists, even if they agree with your points of view or you feel that the current leadership group needs some kind of counterbalance. The San Carlos City Council ran into a situation like that. It happened before I joined it. But the style of engagement a colleague brought to the table actually caused the council to be far less effective because of that style than it would have been otherwise. Now, some people might argue that, well, great, that means there's less governing going on and that's a good thing. But generally, since the whole purpose of having a local government is to deal with community issues and those are changing all the times, having a less effective governing body is not really in the interest of the community. And as you mentioned earlier, Mark, I think it's important on a local level 
to talk to your representatives in person and in private. Have coffee like you talked about, right? Learn the details and context about the issues you care about. And that's the luxury of local government because they're, they're close to you. Some of the most memorable experiences that I had engaging with somebody who at least initially started out being really opposed to something I had done or was proposing to, to do, we ended up eventually with that person going, okay, I still don't agree with your perspective, but now I understand your thinking and that you were thinking about it. And it's related to another thing that citizens can do to get a better type of governance for themselves. Give your electeds room to absorb what they're hearing from you and to learn and to discuss amongst themselves and learn some more and maybe adjust their thinking. I can't tell you the number of times that I had colleagues who would consciously choose and go to great efforts to say nothing or to say something in a way that didn't commit them to anything, precisely because they were worried about being stuck with that position and uh, having to deal with it forever, even though they might change their mind down the road. That kind of non-communication usually causes constituents to get really upset. It's like, all oh, politicians never tell you the truth. They never tell you what's really going on. Part of the reason for that is because they're afraid of what you're going to do if they say something that they later on want to say something different. Which makes me think that, you know, we want to remind people not to be kind of part of the mob. And, and what I mean by that is to not just react when you hear something. First, ask questions and take your time. Ask yourself if this makes sense. You know, what's their motivation? What don't I know? Um, I once heard a speaker talking about dealing with people, and, and she was talking in general, right? Even if you get cut off on the highway, she'd say, make yourself come up with six other explanations for that person's behavior before you react. And admittedly, I don't always do that myself, but it's certainly <laughs> a good lesson to think about. Yeah, me neither. That's sometimes hard on the road. You know, I used to tell people all the time, there's always time to yell at an elected official later. After you've done some research and you've thought about stuff and learned more about the situation that's making you angry. Because you have to remember, no one person ever generally knows all the facts and nuances involving a public decision because they involve all sorts of trade-offs and judgments that are complex and nuanced. And so if you leap to a conclusion that you know everything that's going on and therefore your anger is righteous and justified, you actually risk looking like a fool later on when somebody explains to you, well, you forgot about this and you forgot about that. And I think on a broader level, you know, there's this self-fulfilling prophecy going on because when you denigrate your elected leaders, you reduce the pool of people who are interested in becoming elected leaders. We would all the time talk to citizens we knew in town about, oh, you'd be great if you ran for city council or ran for school board. And they'd look at me like I had three heads. <laughs> they'd say, oh my God, I would <laughs> never want to deal with the slings and arrows that you deal with, right? And that was unfortunate because a lot of people selected themselves out of the process because of the very nature of the way people talk to them. Which dovetails nicely into talking about the lessons that we've both learned about how to be an effective local leader. Well, Mark, my first one is to remind people not to run for office because of a single issue or because you're angry. You'll be more effective and the public will certainly be better served if you run for office because you're truly intellectually stimulated by the portfolio of work and really want to put in the time to focus on the issues, work with colleagues and make positive change. And, and we've seen, of course, at the national level, but even on the local level, too many people run for the wrong reasons. 
And once you're elected, remind the public and yourself, your job is to study, to listen, to make judgments, to look around corners as best you can, and to compare alternate futures, not just the present or the past, to the future. And it's also not about whether we like or dislike something. It's about trade-offs. And I would always remind people when I'd have discussions with them or ran into them somewhere that, you know, we probably have the same goals. I mean, particularly in a local scenario and certainly in a school scenario, we have the same goals. We may have different ways of achieving them, but you'll definitely have more effective conversations once people know your goals are genuine and you're putting in the hard work to make the best decision possible. You'll also be doing yourself a favor if you consistently remind people to avoid that reductionism trap that we talked about earlier. Remind them that however simple it may look on the outside, the simplest public decision is inherently really, really complicated. I can tell you that in my almost 20 years of experience as an elected official, I can count on the fingers of one hand the number of times I was able to make an easier, obvious choice when I had to make a decision on a public matter. And that leads to what we talked about earlier, which is as a public official, you have to listen, but you have to lead. Don't just listen to the loudest voices. Get input broadly, but then at the end of the day, you still are using your best judgment, and then you have to explain it. And remember, too and remind people that taking no action is actually taking an action. You have a responsibility as an elected official to act when it's necessary to do so, even if you aren't sure what the consequences are going to be for your political career. And always remember that you have responsibilities beyond even the boundaries of your community. Yeah, and ignoring those is, uh, frankly, a little bit lazy. Well, I think that's a good place to close this podcast. Uh, Mark, you know, we both learned a lot by being local officials, and although extremely frustrating at times, I know it was one of my best life experiences. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I wouldn't have missed it for anything, even though I had no idea what I was signing up for when I first ran for office. (laughs) That's right. Well, thanks again to all of our listeners. Signing off, this is Seth. And Mark. Hoping that you represent well in politics and life. (laughs) Bye, everyone. See you next time. This podcast is copyright Mark Olbert and Seth Rosenblatt. All rights reserved. The Boiling Frog podcast is written, produced, and hosted by Mark Olbert and Seth Rosenblatt. Audio engineering and technical support provided by Caroline Olbert. Theme song composed by Benjamin Rosenblatt. Music arrangement and production by Mia Rosenblatt. For more information, resources, or to subscribe to this podcast, please visit our website at www.theboilingfrog.net.